Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, uh, Larry, welcome to the RTA podcast. It's uh, fantastic to have you along. I know that we met uh, virtually, I think, two or three months ago on one of my uh, champions forums. And at the time, uh, you were talking about your your business and some of your backstory. And I thought Larry would be a fascinating guest uh, to uh, to have on the podcast. So it's great to finally have you here. Thanks, Richard. I really appreciate you inviting me. Oh, good. So, Larry, um, just to start off with, perhaps just explain to people your current professional responsibilities. Well, um, I'm a uh, pretend managing director. Um, that is, that uh, it's not my chosen field, but I am managing director of Resilient Futures uh, until we fill that position. But my main role in life is as an analyst strategist. Uh, particularly focusing on really complex systems. And uh, in that sort of background, um, I've uh, worked in the US and Australia and some other parts of the world, but mainly in the US and Australia for large corporations or medium to large uh, organisations, corporations and governments and communities. So I've done a lot of work in uh, business strategy uh, plus also um, uh, economic development, uh, transition or transformation strategies and those sorts of things. But one of my passions is actually in community uh, economic development, uh, which we practice for some time. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a spread as an analyst, understanding what's going on in the world and what we call the conditions and understanding opportunities and risks in those conditions and how organisations and communities and, and organisational leaders can deal with those sorts of uh, issues strategically. Okay, and so um, I know that uh, you're doing a lot of work around this uh, COVID-19 and the implications of that at the moment, but perhaps uh, tell us a little bit about one of these uh, challenging uh issues that you've analysed and made strategic recommendations about that we may be familiar with over the last few years? Well, um, some I can't talk of because it's rather sensitive when you look at what we do. Um, uh, But we have clients uh, in um, all parts of um, industry, if you like, and also in government and cities. But... um, if I was to look at, um, say, um, the work that we were doing uh, in America uh, in 2007, um, and what we were doing there was uh, working with communities and economic development, but also working with corporations or organisations working in those sorts of environments because there is no such thing as business separated from government, separated from community. Mm -hmm. They all have to play in the same system at some point, whether they take uh, consideration of each other or not. What we were doing at that time was looking at uh, what what we were hearing um, about uh, the financial um, conditions uh, at the time. And um, 
what we were hearing at the community level was uh, a very much feedback on uh, the types of um, um, uh, housing uh, loans that were being made to people who just couldn't afford it. Yeah. It was called predatory lending at the time. This is 2006, 2007, and we started to notice it. We were at the corporate level in terms of banking, talking to bankers who were saying there's nothing wrong. When we're working in the, uh, the, the likes of um, a, um, um, uh, a, the, the business side, there was a feeling that things went right in terms of how money was being lent, the type of debt ratios people had, etc. But the real proving point was when we spoke to people in um, housing who were looking at, at that time, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were the big government lenders uh, for affordable housing, this sort of thing. And there was this sort of denial of the conditions that were occurring, mm -hmm. an absolute denial that nothing was happening. Uh, I did, we did some research and we found a report from the credit uh, bank the credit Leonese and they said they actually showed a chart that showed where all the loans are going to come to grief and it was 2008 they're going to come to grief and you could virtually pinpoint the time it was going to happen and the roll-on effect of those those loans now if you took those loans by themselves you would say to yourself um, well there's nothing much to worry about there because they're sporadic in different places and some communities are going to get hit hard and uh, Etc. You know, the situation with the bank loans in America is that if you default on a bank loan, you don't pay the, uh, you don't have to pay the bank back. You just lost your investment and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. But um, so that was like, well, you know, if something does happen, what's the matter? And then I just happened to be sitting in the cafe reading the New York Times one Saturday, having my breakfast, and I read this half-page article in the New York Times that talked about the securitization of those loans mm. and uh, the debt that uh, was being incurred um, by um, investors, that they were buying what were classed as AAA loans, um, uh, bonds, securities, and uh, these were all over the place. And there was a little bit down the bottom of saying that these loans have been sold globally. And it was like, uh, you've securitized all this basically crappy debt mm. uh, and passed it off. And what you're doing is um, selling it to people who don't know. And mm. we did a sort of a rummage around as who bought them. And there were little councils everywhere. In fact, the council of I owned a property and in Perth in Western Australia bought those loans. Right. And um, uh, I bought, bought those securities and heavily because they're AAA and et cetera, mm. et cetera. Um, so we forecast, and you'll see it in our book, uh, Disrupted Strategies for Exponential Change, we forecast the GFC based on conditions analysis. And uh, once again, went around and telling people, and they said, you're crazy, it's not going to happen. Uh, obviously, it did. But the interesting thing was that the chairman of a large bank came out and said, no one could have reasonably foreseen these conditions, mm. which was wrong in so mm. many ways. And the reason I'm explaining this to you as a real-life example, it is happening now. Mm -hmm in that people do not understand the conditions at a global level or a local level mm -hmm. that are impacting them.
And I can give you a load of four instances on that. Well, Larry, I'd like, to, I'd, I'd like to come back to that, uh, definitely. Uh, a lot of people who, um, you know, listen to this podcast are aspiring managing directors and CEOs and board directors and so on. So what I'm just uh, interested in, uh, in that situation, I mean, I'm, I'm more interested in your organisation and, and how um, uh, you're engaged. So was that a situation where off your own back you'd, you'd done some research, you'd read this article, you'd, you'd um, identified this potential issue, uh, uh, or was it a case of where an entity, whether that's a, you know, the banking um, industry or, or a, are actually engaging you and saying, hey, Larry, we think there's something going on here, we want you to investigate it. And maybe it doesn't necessarily need to be specifically to that example, but when how how are you engaged? Well, it's pretty simple. Um, our main role is training. Our main role is to train organisation and particularly organisation leaders in a framework that we use called strategy and action. Got it. Okay. So okay. we we train organisations. We've trained um, a whole bunch of organisations from. Um, uh, who can I mention? Um, uh, Ericsson, uh, all the way across to Association uh, the uh, Royal, um, sorry, the um, Optometry Australia, mm -hmm. to people in government in the US. Uh, just a very, very simple thing called strategy and action, which at a very simple level is about understanding the conditions you're working inside, the immediate emergent conditions. Mm -hmm. It is then about understanding the opportunity risk inside that, what value you want to generate, what capabilities do you need, and what catalytic action you need to take. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, but I won't try and explain the whole model, but the front piece that you have to have, if you're a, a managing director of a company and you don't have a good understanding with your team of the immediate emergent conditions at scale, because we're in a global economy these days, if you don't understand that, it's pretty sure you're going to make mistakes. And that, that understanding of conditions, immediate emergent from global to local, if you mm -hmm. don't understand that, based on what could it or would, will impact your organisation, you are, are blindsided. You're going to be blindsided. Right. And that, that, then what you have to have is in your team is that shared context for decision making. You have to have a shared understanding of conditions. So that's basically, we do two things on that. Basically, we teach people how to do that. And secondly, we what, call, what we call sense check their ability to do that. So for instance, with Ericsson, we help them set up um, a, um, an Australasian conditions watching team. Mm -hmm. And their job is to watch the immediate merchant conditions at scale impacting the tele telco industry mm -hmm. and them. And you also got to look for their peripheral wildcards as well, because there's all sorts of craziness happens that isn't necessarily industry focused mm -hmm. that you have to watch. But we, we actually teach people how to set up these sorts of uh, conditions teams mm -hmm. and then train them because you get that right and the rest flows. Okay, fantastic. And so are you largely engaged by uh, the individual organisation or are there other types of clients that you're engaged by as well? Well, we're engaged by individual organisations and they're uh, from, um, as I say, the likes of an Ericsson uh, across to Royal Australian College of Surgeons. Um, we're doing work um, uh, with them at the moment on, you know, what is the future of surgery? 
Okay. Basically, for us, it's a conditions analysis on not just the the future of surgery. It's like what's the business models that will arise mm -hmm. out of having uh, surgery in a completely different environment, um, all the way across to working with um, uh, councils mm -hmm. and looking at how councils, uh, city councils need to be thinking about conditions in suburban environments or even looking at city environments. I mean, for instance, the city of Melbourne right now has got a huge issue around commercial real estate, given mm -hmm. that the square meter economy, those business models that are based on selling square meters, commercial real estate, transport and all of those, if you can't put 50 people into a space, you can only put 25, it impacts your business model at renting commercial space. So you're going to see in places like Melbourne, Sydney, huge reductions in the amount of people that are travelling there. So that mm -hmm. impacts transport because you can't, you know, the square metre economy uh, is based on density of people. Mm -hmm. And if you think about what we call the shoulder to shoulder industries, entertainment, transport, mm -hmm. you know, if you look at people coming into town, shoulder to shoulder, well, you can't do that for the next mm -hmm. two maybe three years. Mm -hmm. So um, what are those conditions that a city or a council needs to think about? But also the organisations inside those, you know, well, one of our clients is a large commercial real estate organisation and the, the question is, what do we do with all the square metres we've got that mm -hmm. all of a sudden in some locations, particularly in large shopping centres, they're pushing back on rents. Mm -hmm. So you've got large people, large, you know, without, you know, the large supermarkets and chains, et cetera, saying, oh, we're not going to pay that amount of rent anymore. Mm. And you've also got to look at what's also happened is there's been digital acceleration to saturation. Mm -hmm. Now, we're in, in, um, in, say, in Melbourne, digital saturation is, is almost complete. And with the extra work they've put into the NBN and uh, with 5G coming out and other satellite-based services, digital saturation in Western economies is there. So all of a sudden people go, you know, we know the remote work, work, working from home or working from place is huge. You know, we did a study uh, uh, 12 years ago in the United States about one little village in Connecticut. If it had actually, instead of all those people commuting to Manhattan, if they stayed at home for two days a week and didn't go to Manhattan, what, what, drop off in the economic sort of Manhattan would occur and what increase would happen in local economies. Mm -hmm. It was immense because if you, if you millions of people doing that every day, mm. if you just say, take two days out. So most people are saying, we're either not, we're going to go back to the office. We say, well, we're only going to go back for three days or two days. So, you know, when we say yeah, we're not going back to the office, it usually means when we're going back occasionally, but you've got this huge impact on a city or a, wherever it might be. Uh, and you've got this impact from shoulder to shoulder, you know, like how are you going to fill the MCG for the grand final next year if they've got shoulder to shoulder uh, requirements? Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, the uh, COVID-19 is not, there's no silver bullet for COVID-19. Mm. I know you'll hear from the esteemed President Trump that he has a silver bullet. Yeah, well, it's like he had a silver bullet for everything else he's done, which has been a failure. There's no silver bullet. The best thing we can get is a treatment. So, Larry, uh, let's, before we get into that, you know, you've got a really interesting backstory. Uh, 
you know, I remember you sharing some of it uh, when we spoke last time. So tell us a little bit about, you know, uh, uh, what's led you into this career and, uh, and you know, some of uh, what's been happening uh, in the lead up to where your position now. Oh, it's a good question. Um, where were you born? I was born in Perth in Western Australia. Okay. A place called Rivervale. Yeah. Um, which has changed a lot since I lived there. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to uh, Rivervale Primary School um, and uh, Belmont High School. And um, I basically didn't like and I failed school. Right. Um, that was pretty clear. Um, were, you, were your parents uh, in business? Were they... You know, what kind of uh, careers did they have? I had fabulous parents. My, my dad was a, an aircraft um, maintenance manuals guy. He wrote maintenance for all sorts of aircraft, how to maintain mm-hmm. them and all that. He worked for uh, ANSET up until he retired. And my mum was a home mum, you know, mm-hmm. so they were fantastic, they had a fantastic family, fantastic upbringing. I was a bit of the black sheep. I was a disappointment, I think, really, and I understand why, <laughs> because I was the kid that was hopefully going to go to university, but I had no hope of ever doing that. I joined the army for a brief sprint um, and then uh, left that and uh, ended up going to England for a holiday. I worked in a bank for a certain amount of time, um, but I just dying to get out of Perth in the 68, 69. So in 69, I went to England for a holiday and stayed for 11 years. I worked in mainly in fashion there. Um, and that was manufacturing, design, all sorts of things. Um, a colleague um, and friend of my first wife's, close friend of my first wife's, my first wife's family, Paul Smith. Oh, really? Who, okay. Uh, passion name today, and Paul's done extremely well. But we've had a few beers together in, in, the, in the early 70s. He used to be the store manager of my sister-in-law's shop. Oh, is that right? And uh, so, you know, I've been, uh, I've worked with um, the best, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm not too sure that I was the best in fashion. But I came back to Australia and uh, worked in um, various positions. Um, and I was a sales manager for James West back mm-hmm. in the 80s. But, you know, I, I um, tried going to, back to university and that never worked out. But uh, then I, I started to um, do various things in marketing and strategic thinking and strategic planning and really just sorted it out for myself. And I, I decided in when the 80s collapse occurred, um, I decided to throw all the books away and create my own framework, which mm-hmm. I've worked on now uh, since the late 80s, but definitely into the 90s. And one of the first things we discovered in using the framework was the internet. Right. So I developed an internet business, which was um, semi-successful. Um, I wouldn't call it successful in the end. It was bought out by people who it didn't go too f- much further than that, eventually closed down. But that was a national business. It did some pretty big things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started to develop this framework called um, Strategy in Action or the Resilient Futures Framework. And in doing that, I went to the US. I did some projects around the place. And I was living in Melbourne. I went to the US on a tour and I got invited to present in a place called Providence, Rhode Island. I was doing this, uh, what was called creative economies, next economies thing in the US looking. So I went to places that are about the same size as Perth. I was working in Melbourne. I was working with restaurant in government. 
and went to these different places and eventually I got to Providence, Rhode Island. I got invited to, um, uh, to do some projects there. So I was commuting to, to Providence six weeks on, six weeks off, six weeks on, six weeks off for about six months to eight months or nine months and then decided to go live there and uh, lived and worked in America for three or four years, um, which was very exciting. I love, I love two things. I love working there because it's such a complex place to work. Mm. And I love my America. I don't like certain parts of it, but I do love my America and my, a lot of my American friends. But um, I guess the, the, the experience I had 10 years in the UK, the years I had in Australia, and I think one of the, you know, and the, obviously the, my experience in the, U, um, the USA, which you know, once I had gotten through cancer, I had a bone marrow transplant, like the next day I was back working over there. Mm. And uh, just that all experience in retail, I think one of the best things that happened to me is I didn't necessarily go to university. Mm. And, so without, uh, uh, so uh, because I remember you talking about this uh, last time we spoke, I mean, you know, this was a pretty significant health issue for you, wasn't it, Larry? Um, and, uh, and yeah, and uh, I imagine that um, ha not having personally dealt with that, but knowing many people who've had similar situations, um, you're in this amazing, you're really getting your career firing, you're traveling backwards and forwards to the US and, and, uh, and then um, suddenly you st discover you, you've got leukemia and you said, look, the, the next day after a bone marrow transplant, uh, I'm back on a plane. But without kind of glossing over that, I, you know, what was the impact in terms of your own consideration? I mean, your own strategy had been disrupted, hadn't it? Uh, I can't imagine yeah. this was something you expected or wished for. So how, how did that change your perspective in terms of your own career? Well, um, to be perfectly honest, it was one of the best things that happened to me. Mm. Now that I just, I apologize to everyone who's experienced or, or experiencing firsthand or secondhand cancer. I really apologize, but I have to say my truth. And what it did was stop me in my tracks because whilst my, um, my commercial life was, was exciting and, you know, living in America and doing what I was doing there, my per in my commercial life and my professional life, if you like, but my personal life was a mess. And um, it um, allowed me, you know, I, I can remember I'm going to the State House in Providence, Rhode Island to do talk to Department of Planning and all this sort of stuff, trying to work stuff out. And um, I got a a call from a doctor, uh, uh, the doctor's nurse saying, oh, Mr. Quick, I'm just ringing you up to say, give you the results of your blood test. And I go, yeah, yeah, get on with it. And she said, well, your cholesterol's fine and da-da-da, you know, go to the, you know, and oh, by the way, you need to go urgently to see this, this specialist. Mm. I, what, what does the specialist do? Um, I think he's a hematologist. What's a hematologist? Okay, okay, I just made, so I, I rang through and made an appointment and went to see him and I walked in and he said to me, um, I didn't have any inkling because I walked in and it was like, so you've got cancer. I go, I ain't got cancer. And I walked into his, his surgery, like at his rooms, and he said, uh, are you okay? And I went, I'm fine. I was in the gym the night before. I'm just fine. And he goes, well, you shouldn't be. Mm. 
gave me what's called a bone marrow biopsy on the point, you know, on the on the table right there and then. And I was it bloody hurt. He said, you should have this under a bit of anaesthetic. But I said, no, just get it over with. So we did it. And I got diagnosed with uh, acute myeloid leukemia. And I was in America and I had full health cover in America. And that was at 11 o'clock. And in the morning, I drove back to my house, rang a mate of mine, took me to the airport, and I got a flight straight out home. The doctor said, don't go. Uh, You've got to stay here um, because, you know, you you could uh, have what's called rigel, so you could have an attack Mm. because your immune system's not working. So I got back to... um, I actually went through Hamburg, which was fun because I'm a big Beatles fan. And I, I went to the Beatles store at the airport there and bought a whole bunch of stuff. And I must admit, when I got home, my wife said to me, oh, you bought all this Beatles stuff? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not too, it's not too good if I die, is it? But anyway, so um, uh, I went to six months in um, the um, cancer ward in Perth. Uh, and it was a transformative experience, to be honest. Um, because you get very used to what I call NDEs, near-death experiences. Mm. And, you know, I really apologise if I'm sounding excited about this for people who are going through the hell that it is, because it is hell. You know, um, I've just spent six months in lockdown in the office here mm. because of my sort of condition. I'm, if I get um, COVID, it's a good chance I won't bucket. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, I've spent six months in lockdown here and it was a, a cruise, a breeze. I'm talking about, you know, we've got a, an office here. It's got bathroom, kitchen, showers and all that sort of stuff. So, mm. you know, I was in lockdown here for six months. Most of the time was spent with my partner, David Platt, as in business partner, mm-hmm. and missing my home and my wife and my kids and all that sort of stuff. And then, um, uh, but I can tell you that, then in six months in the cancer ward, the, the lockdown was cruise. So, you know, um, you get a, a, a good sense of yourself and other people in that experience. And I, I don't know how you actually replicate that because I was one of the few of my friends in hospital that made it through. Right. And uh, it is a time of deep reflection because you, you, you become to, to understand that it, there's not, not any being, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to die. It's, mm. You understand what a privilege it is to live on, at this time in our situation. Mm. You know, being an Australian, apart from those people that are really deprived, mm. um, which isn't the masses in Australia, I must admit, compared to my time in England and time in Europe and time in America. But um, uh, you get a good sense of, of who you are and what's important to you. You know, we're running a course soon about owning your future work. And the first question we ask people is, what do you value? Mm. And when we run it, the amount of people that go, I've never answered that question. Well, probably never, even, never thought even thought about it. About it. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And it's sort of, you ask it now, you say, you know, what do you value? What value do you want to build in your life? And who is it for? Mm. And we're not prescriptive about that, you know, I mean, but in the times where I've run it, I haven't heard anyone say, what do I value? I value a home with a swimming pool and a job with $300,000 a year. 
Yeah. It's always yeah. based on people. Yeah. And, you know, if you're going to have a house, and you know, it's about that's for the people. Mm. So at this time for COVID, it's a great question to ask, what do I value mm. and who's that for? Mm. And in fact, it's, a, it's something that gets brought up quite regularly in the Champion Forums. We were talking about it this morning. Uh, you know, there were a number of people from Melbourne who were getting extremely despondent about the ongoing lockdown and, and so on. And, and yet when you think of it in the context of, you know, I used a, a, a saying that I love, um, I used to feel sad I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet. And, uh, yes, exactly. Uh, and... Um, and, and another thing that people talk a lot about is their legacy. And uh, I suppose I have this uh, attitude that um, I will die, guaranteed. I will probably die sooner than I hope or expect to die, right? Yep. And after I die, not long after that, nobody will ever remember that I was alive. You know, my kids will. Perhaps my grandkids might, you know, but... Um, uh, even the greatest, most successful uh, musicians and actors and playwrights and philosophers and so on, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that long before you're forgotten. So why? Um, so where is your attention? What is your is your attention yes. on um, building? You know this massive fortune and working ninety hours a week and you know, feeling that you're creating this legacy because really at the end of the day, life's pretty short. We've only got one of them. So why not do what you love? Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's a really interesting question because I've got to say that there's only been a very few times in my time, my life, that I haven't done what I wanted to do. Uh, and, um, and what, what, what was good, what I thought was a good idea. Yeah. You know, um, my beautiful wife, second, my, my first wife's a lovely lady, um, and, uh, but my second wife who I've been with for 30 years, she um, uh, has followed me around the world, you know, and, you know, flipping from here from there and uh, doing my thing. And um, uh, that's been so um, wonderful for me. But um, it's when you get to look back and go, I look at her now and I go, God, you must love me so much mm. because who in the hell would have put up with me, <laughs> you know, in real terms? And, uh, but, you know, I've got, to, I've got to say that I look back and there's very few, there's some dark times, but even if it, when you look back, you know, it wasn't really dark, it was just an experience mm. in a set of situ circumstances. I didn't really understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. how to work with it and you'll learn about it later but you know my lifespan I'm 70 in a couple of months time and if I've got another 10 years I'd be extremely happy mm -hmm. that's nice to say that I will but I'm intending because I want to see my 11 grandkids grow up but I want to see my 11 grandkids grow up in a world that's worthy of living in and not in exactly the same way as I've experienced my 70 to 80 years but in something that is inspiring and something that is motivating and, and fair and, you know, just and value, you know, it's sort of, um, and I, I think that's what you learn as you get older. It's like, mm. you know, you hear that all the time. I wish I, I wish I was 21 and know what I knew now, mm. but you know, if you're a young leader in your thirties or forties, maybe twenties, 
um, it, it, you, you've, it's a great idea to understand what you value mm. and then say, you know, say you've got an, a, 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 um, a, an intention of having kids. If you had kids and then they have kids, what will you value then? Mm. Mm. So that, you know, yeah, the, the, rush, the rush to actually own and occupy and do all the stuff, you know, for me, it could be tempered by, mm. I didn't realise I was going to have uh, five kids and 11 grandkids. Mm. I had no idea. And they all happened, the grandkids all happened in uh, an eight-year period. Mm. Five kids, eight grandkids. And you go, no, 11 grandkids. And you go, what do I got all these grandkids? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's interesting, Rich, you asked the question where you talk about leaving a legacy. You know, when we worked in America, we did a lot of work on trying to find out how to get people out of poverty and um, what you could teach them in um, getting out of a poverty cycle. Mm-hmm. You know, because cyclical, poverty is cyclical, you know. And it's when in America they have this view that everyone can, individuals can stand up for themselves, anything possible, mm. which is rubbish. It's not true. It's, mm. it's a community that raises people. And um, uh, we're in Australia. The bigger difference in Australia is we have a fair go. We're socially just, well, we were, and I think we're, we've got to hang on to it. Socially just community in Australia. America is completely different. I think England is more like us than, than, than America is in that regard. Mm. They're about the individual here. We're more about us as a community and working together. But what we found over there, that leaving a legacy was one of the key things that, you know, young criminals had who had families. We're mostly talking about African-American that we work with, that worked in the drug Area. They, they, when they were younger, they were like, oh, bling and all that sort of stuff. As they got a bit older, even if they weren't married to the child's mother, they wanted to do something right, majority, and they wanted to leave a legacy. They just didn't know how to do it. Mm. You know, they had no clue on what to look for because, you know, a lot of the programs they had over there paid them hardly any money at all. They couldn't afford to stop selling drugs. Yeah. It's $50,000 a year that you need in some of the states we worked in for a person to bring a family up so that they, the mother could look after the kids, be home and looking after the kids and not get into crack and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. But, you know, they were getting welfare programs that paid them 20. Mm. So they, they couldn't even afford to rent a house and bring, and bring a family up. Mm. So you, you've got this ingrained poverty that occurs but they all wanted to, they all talked about leaving a legacy mm. and just didn't know how to do it. So we worked on a model called the value of work cycle that talks about some, you know, we talk about these five, it starts with what do you value? If you center someone in their values based on some universal values that usually people aspire to, such as being free, safe, equal, recognized, valued, and judged in the same way under law. Mm-hmm. If you just, get people to understand that, then they'll start to say, I'd value this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's secure and valued work, number one. Stable family situation, number two. Upward mobility of the family, that is rising to different levels of society. Mm -hmm. Wealth creation, so that it's not like, I'm going to go and make a billion dollars, or you could. Most of it is like, I own a home, I'm liquid. 
Yeah. And then the, the, that one of leaving my legacy is mm-hmm. such a critical one. And that value of work cycle, we work with in, in Australia in owning your future work. And it's amazing how many people go, oh, I get it. And this came from uh, uh, people in depressed communities. Mm-hmm. Of um, a, a um, where work, where does work fit in? Mm-hmm. You know, rather than being obsessed with work, where does it fit, and how much do I actually have to do mm. to achieve what I want? You know, such as secure and valued work. You know, we just have to look at what you know um, the casualization of work's works done. You know, we've got uh, some of our best teachers in universities on two-year contracts that don't get renewed, like our educators are on short-term contracts. Mm. You know, I don't get that. Mm. Um, you know, a gig, gig economy, you know, or five jobs. You know, we haven't had a, an increase in wages. And I'm not a, a lefty or a righty. I'm just saying, if you want to have a, uh, an economy that works, you have to distribute the, the money. The so mm. labour has to have some capital rather than being owned by a few people. Mm. So that you generate secure and valued work. There's enough money there to have a stable family situation. And it doesn't matter if it's a split family or not. It's a stable family situation. Mm. We all make mistakes in relationships. Um, particularly, you know, people get married at the age of 20 and are going to live to 100. I don't know how you work that out for the rest of your life. <laughs> I certainly didn't. Um, but, you know, upward mobility, wealth creation. Well, how do I do that? You know, mm. without being a career maniac. Where, where, you know, kids with two parents that are manic careerists all of a sudden aren't um, spending time with their kids, mm. which is another form of having, you know, 10 jobs and not spending time with the kids. Mm. So, you know, um, I, I just think that um, in my experience, you know, I, 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 if I said it like this, that, oh, I understand how it's supposed to work. At the age of 70. Yeah. Uh, uh, Larry, I'm keen to sort of segue the conversation into uh, what we spoke about earlier in relation to the climate economy. But just before we do, to sort of close out on this, again, this is something that we were talking about this morning. And um, if you look at a traditional Indigenous culture, you know, children were brought up by the village, not by mum and dad and 2.3 kids living in a you know, a 400 square metre block of land with a fence around it. And, uh, yeah. and I think that, uh, you know, we, uh, generalisation, but, you know, white um, uh, first world um, countries think, oh, we're so civilised and, you know, we, because we've got vacuum cleaners and aeroplanes and, and yet in many respects that traditional lifestyle, much more time for socialisation, much more... Um, uh, vibrant spirituality, much greater sense of community, much more leisure time. So I think often uh, we're deluded if we think that, you know, this is uh, the best that life can be. And uh, when you start to uh, think about that, um, there are lots of other ways to consider your life than, you know, double income, you know, earning 300k but uh, unable to uh, spend time with the kids on the weekend because you've got constant deadlines it's a it's a yeah. funny way that people value life isn't it oh absolutely and i think it's um it's not anyone's fault we've just fallen into this thing that um 
uh, you know, having, you know, I've got a background in advertising and, mm-hmm. you know, if you ask me, you know, how to manipulate consumption, I, I can tell you how to do that. Um, uh, but we've, I think we've become so engrossed in um, a, a desocialization. To, uh, like it's, it's what I call outsourcing your values. Mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, you see it, you see, you know, with, this has been happening for a while. It's like, um, how do I get some values? I get a religion, mm. you know, uh, and I'm not a religious person at all. Um, I don't belong to any religion, but, you know, I know what I value and I know I value uh, the society I, I live in. I, I don't really value flags. I don't value... Um, national anthems that, that, you know, I value the people, I value Australians, mm. the people, and there's, there's symbols that you can have that, that might represent that, but that's not the symbol, you know, as soon as the symbol becomes more important than the people, you've lost it. And mm. uh, you only have to look at the dogma in politics, how they manipulate people around symbols and that sort of stuff. So, you know, we, we get symbolic values, which is some sort of club you belong to or, you know, badge you wear or, and you outsource your values. They, someone else tells you what you value. And um, at the end of the day, you haven't had the conversation with yourself and you, you know, people get married without knowing what the other person values, mm-hmm. you know, and the, it, it, it's not evidential. You know what I mean? It's sort of taken as a, a thing, but then as people grow, what do you value when you grow? So I think why people grow apart is their values are unevidenced and they're not able to share them. Um, And it goes into companies. It's sort of like you see it all the time. Like, you know, do we really believe that a bank says such and such bank more than money? Or such and such grocery store, the fresh food people? Mm -hmm. You know, the business model on both those promises, those values that they're espousing, don't, don't work. Mm. You can't have supermarkets with fresh food. Mm. You know, it's, it just doesn't work. You know, and if you look at uh, food security from the point of um, nutritionist food security, we've got a real problem. There's not much nutritious food, fully nutritious food, uh, to bring people up to a level of health that they don't need health care. Mm. Um, particularly in places like America. Mm. So we, we've grown to outsource our values to a brand or um, a body shape or whatever it is without first saying, okay, what do I value as a kid? Then they can grow as they learn what that means. And then they can have that set of values applied to something if they choose. If I value, you know, a certain, if I value a certain thing and I can then become part of that group. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when it's sort of thrust on you and all of a sudden you're not even thinking about it, that, you know, I belong to this group and they, I value what they value. Mm-hmm. But I go home and I don't know what I'm doing, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, I think that a lot of what we've, we're doing now, particularly in COVID-19, allows us to really question that. Well, I think that's, uh, you know, because we spoke a little prior to starting the recorded uh, conversation and, and, and what I found really fascinating with your perspective on 
we are in a, uh, a COVID-19 world and potentially, you know, the next couple of years, but really, you know, there's some underpinning um, uh, larger, um, more consequential challenges, the climate being, you know, the one that we discussed. And so you were saying that uh, it's all well to have a sort of a, a short-term orientation towards COVID, but putting our attention on, you know, what is a real climate economy? So perhaps, um, Larry, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, if you if you're sort of like think about in um, horizons, if you like, and look at, at where the horizon zero um, was 2019 into, say, January 2020, we already had most social, economic, and definitely environmental systems in collapse. Um, I won't go through the details of um, uh, the um, uh, environment, but you know, like you only have to look at Australia in, in our last fire season. But around the world, there's environmental systems are in collapse. They're not able to be saved. They're in collapse. Uh, social systems in collapse. You only have to look at the reason why you know the Trump, the um, Duterte, the um, the Brexit stuff. Uh, the um, uh, uh, the Brazil these these leaders are being elected for populist reasons and the, the societies don't know what to do they're very uncertain social collapse is happening it's not so much seen in Australia we just watch America like it's a soap soap opera mm. um, but the economic systems are in collapse you cannot have an economic system where so few people have access to capital. Labor doesn't have access to capital. If you don't get capital flows through labor, you don't get the true demand. So you have to pump up demand by offering debt. And then the labor gets more debt than it's got. We've got a debt bomb occurring at the moment. So you had, you know, with all of this sort of, okay, you've had your holiday now in mortgages, you're going to see a huge debt explosion start to happen around now towards into 2021. So we're already in collapse and then COVID happens. And obviously there's a whole bunch of stimulus money goes in. The Americans printed more money than the Australian economy. And uh, so, you know, everyone's stimulated, you know, pay money, job keeper, job seeker, whatever. You know, we're all sort of okay in Australia. Um, and, but what's happened is the collapse of the square metre economy, um, commercial rents, you know, transport, um, what we call shoulder to shoulder, so you know, entertainment. How many people you get in a pub or a restaurant? The business models for those are up for grabs. So this is a real economy we're talking about now. There's lots of risk. But there's also lots of opportunity in that economy. You know, you've got digital saturation. You've got um, the, the the likelihood of working from home, which brings more value into local communities. So it's definitely a shift. You know, you've got pan-safe. There's a whole industry in pan-safe or pandemic-safe environments. Mm -hmm. You know, you only have to look at who's making masks these days. You know, how many people are selling um, um, hand sanitizer and all that that wasn't mm -hmm. there before. Now, these are all going to work themselves out. But, you know, you've got, you know, did, as I said, um, a digital over physical infrastructure. And one of our clients, Ericsson, as I say, has been full-on trying to expand the MBN. Mm. Um, but, you know, the tele-services, you know, the amount of people that can now do tele-services. So there's a huge amount of opportunity in this economy. There is big risk, but there's a huge amount of opportunity. You know, you're going to see a lot of investment in refurbishment of buildings and CBDs, et cetera. 
And there's going to be some pain because there's some businesses that won't be able to sustain. There's also some what called zombie businesses that we're never going to sustain anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's not about picking winners, but we're going to go through this real economy, which is a COVID economy. You've got to understand there's no going back. We don't want to go back to 2019. It wasn't working. So you've got to look at it from the social economic side of being in this in this um, um, in this new economy, the new COVID economy. Um, so that's going to be lasting for two to three years because you're not going to, you know, the people who go, oh, this is get over this COVID thing. Oh, for God, let's just open up again. You know, it's not like you can say to COVID now, go away, go back to your pen. You're going to. You know, this disease is a, is, a, is a new type of virus. It's not the same as flu. It is having lasting impact on young people who get it. It kills older people um, and it, uh, it, it transforms. It's morphing in America. Uh, so you're going to get a treatment more than you're going to get a, a really sustaining vaccine. So you've got at least 2021, 2022, those two years. Now, what we can't forget that what we were going to do pre-COVID was focus on how we're going to get ourselves organised in Australia in 2020, 2021 20, and 22 mm. uh, from a climate change perspective. That hasn't gone away. So what we've got to do is make sure whatever investments we put in terms of opportunities and mitigating risk in 2021, 20, 22 in the COVID economy is in sync with what we call the real climate economy mm -hmm. because we've only got five years to do that. So you've got uh, three years of, um, of COVID economy, you know, before it becomes just normal and COVID is just one of the pandemics we're back because there'll be more. And we've, um, we've, we're just flowing into the next two to three years. But in that five-year period to, to 2025, we have to get ourselves understanding the real climate economy. And because we only got to 2030 before the emissions uh, uh, reduction are reached. And if we don't achieve those emissions reductions, well, it just, the, the, the climate globally just goes into shock. Um, and, you know, what I'm saying is it's your choice. <laughs> you know, you're either going to adapt to a climate that is real in terms of what you do about the climate, or you adapt to a climate and say, we're not doing anything. So you, it's a choice that people have to make. And in an organization doing its, um, its conditions watch, it has to sort itself out from a COVID economy perspective. Mm. That's a must because, you know, it's a bit like, um, uh, you know, happened, um, you know, climate change was the biggest moral challenge in the world, according to Rudd. Then 2008 came and you saw it happen globally. When the GFC, the global financial crisis happened, the climate was off the, off the, off the page. You know, we're not gonna, we can't look at that now. We've got to get our economy sorted out. And it just got worse. Now, we can't afford to do that. We don't have the time now. We have to get this sorted in the next five years. And a good way of doing it is to reorganise towards the COVID economy so that it fits in sync with what we're doing in the future. All right. So, Larry, let me sort of uh, try and make it a bit more practical from my understanding. So <clears throat> uh, if 
an organisation is saying, look, we are trying to strategically um, position ourselves for COVID and, and then the, uh, the real climate economy. But at the end of the day, you know, that organisation has limited influence. You know, uh, how are they able to predict what the world will look like post-2030? You know, if they're a, uh, uh, an organisation that's trying to compete but has limited impact on global decision-makings about the climate. No, absolutely. Uh, I, I would suggest that we're not trying to do that, that prediction. The first thing that we talk about is understanding uh, strategic thinking and a model that actually can work in this environment because your ideas of visions, missions and all that sort of stuff just doesn't work. Um, it never has, never will. It was just uh, a nice way of, of acting uh, in a semi-stable, well, tra trance that we were in 2019. You know, you only have to look at the collapse of the banking system uh, with um, the Royal Commission and the visions that those, those um, directors put out. They were just bullshit, you know, like, they just corrupted the whole idea of visioning and that sort of stuff. So we're not asking people to predict the future or have misery. They can have a vision for the future, but it's got to be based on what they value in terms of being there in the future. Mm. But, you know, what, what you... Firstly, you have to learn a strategic model that is a real strategic model. And on the sales pitch there, that's strategy and action, which watch we teach. The mm. first thing that we talk teach around that is it's not just the, the people at the top that do it, it's more people in the organisation can do it um, and get a sense of primarily, first up, is the conditions. What are the immediate emergent conditions? That that's happening now and emergent coming at us from the future mm -hmm. at scale that will impact us. Now, that's got to be treated really seriously in organisations because we're in a global economy. Mm. You know, digital saturation has just made that exponentially just take, you know, it's gone and work from home, bang. Mm. You know, it was always a trend, but now it's happening very fast. Mm. So we've got to come to terms with, you know, I'm not asking people to say, try and work out what the, the economy is going to be like in 2025 or 2026. Mm. What I'm saying is let's get the COVID economy understood now 2020, 21, 22. At an organisational level. At an organisational level. Then we, because we're in this understanding of conditions, we can see things that are starting to come. Mm -hmm. And be agile. You know, so, say again? And, and become agile. So, that's right. You're, yeah. you know, don't use agile. Agile doesn't work in these environments. Oh, I, I, yeah, that's one of those uh, co-opted words, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. You've, got to, you've got to be able to think what are the immediate emergent conditions at scale mm -hmm. and understanding that you've got to change ahead of change. You've got to be able to do those things. Changing ahead of change is really important, learning how to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but also what you've got to do is in understanding conditions, one of the key things it does is, is breaks down the complexity. Because when you have a huge disruption like we've had, where drops off really quickly, performance drops really quickly. Past information doesn't have the currency that it had before. So everything appears complex. Mm -hmm. but, but all you have to do is to do a reassessment of the conditions. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a bit like if I, um, you're, a, you're walking through the 
bush, etc. You had a compass and you had a map and you had all those sort of things and you thought you're on track and I picked you up, put you in a blindfold and took you somewhere else and let you out. Mm -hmm. The first thing you'd be is disoriented. Mm -hmm. Just be disoriented and confused and look around and go, well, this isn't the same information I had when I was back there before. So you have to reorient yourself by understanding the conditions. Mm -hmm. What's immediate, what's emergent at scale. And you do that. And the faster you can do that, the better. So the more you're trained in conditions analysis, the faster you do things. <coughs> and most people aren't. don't have any idea what I'm talking about. say conditions analysis. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's my skill is conditions analysis and strategic thinking. And so, you know, that's why we teach people a really, really important thing. So what we're talking about is understand the COVID economy, conditions impacting your organisation. Now, you know, COVID economy is not about, oh, I've got social distancing happening, blah, 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 blah. It's, there's a whole bunch of things happening mm -hmm. around the full economy of that. You know, one of the things is, uh, you know, Australia, uh, uh, um, Chinese have just um, um, stopped all coal imports from Australia, you know, mm. because the Chinese are pissed off with the welding. We know what's going on there. It's a geopolitical fight with Australia and the Western world and led by crazy Trump. You know, you've got to sort, you've got to understand what they mean in terms of your, um, uh, uh, your organisation. And it's, it might say, well, hold on, we're just uh, this. You go, yeah, but the halo effect of where we are today comes pressing in very, very quickly. Mm. So it's understanding conditions and how to do it is the starting point. We do a thing called, when clients join us, we do a thing called a condition sense check. Mm -hmm. All it is is teach them the basics and talk to them and get a bit of, and present them some stuff back. And most of the time they go, well, we already sort of knew that, but hadn't put it into some sort of shared mm. context for understanding. Mm. And then it's they're on their way to learning how to do it. Fantastic. And so, Larry, for people, who are, for people who are listening to this podcast, uh, who are keen to learn more and perhaps uh, uh, get some of your education and, and the services that you provide, what's the best way for them to, uh, to get a better understanding and reach out and connect with you? Well, um, oh, just send me an email. Um, I can shunt it to the right people. It's just easier. Just um, uh, MD, M for Mary, D for Donald dare I say the word Donald, uh, MD at resilientfutures, all one word, dot com. Or um, you can go to um, uh, the resilientfutures.com website and um, there's a page there called Get Started and you can send messages from that. Or they can send me an email. We'll and there's uh, various ways of starting. We've got a, uh, a network and we've got a... Um, a, a, a prime network that we do. We've got a lady called Rebecca Costa on the next um, session and she wrote a book called The Watchman's Rattle and The Verge mm -hmm. and she's a very well known American friend of mine and so you know there's a whole bunch of things that you can do with us individually or organisationally. Well we uh, will share uh, both uh, Larry's email address and the website in the show notes and, uh, and also if uh, you get on to Amazon and look up uh, his book Disrupted Strategy for Exponential Change, which I see has had some fantastic reviews on there. Uh, Larry, well done. And, uh, and so That's now an audio as well. That's an audio. Who, who did, did the audio? audio? Did you do it yourself? Um, 
No, 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 no. Um, um, I'm far too lazy to do that. Um, <laughs> sit in the studio. Really uh, 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 no, um, it's um, a friend of ours in America. Okay. All right. Good stuff. And so uh, just to wrap it up, Larry, uh, it sounds as though you're not a huge fan of uh, Donald Trump, but do you think he's going to win? Yes. I do too. Now, let me qualify what I mean. Is he going to win? Um, Donald... Um, has never won anything in his life. Uh, he is just a exceptionally winning person at losing. Right. So he he um, he is, you know, uh, every, everything he's done has failed. His net worth is less uh, uh, than the money that his father gave him. Um, and uh, even now, he, you think that's true? Oh, it is true. It's, it's you know, it's, that's not me saying it. That's, that's true. Is okay. If you'd taken the money and put it on the stock exchange, it would be worth double of what his right. money got. But his true net worth without his debt. But you also got to understand that um, his ability to litigate small people and kill them off really quickly. So he's actually had loads of bankruptcies in his life. So if you look at the money he's lost, He's virtually, not, he's not worth anything. And, but he, he knows how to win in losing. And um, I think Biden will win the election. Uh, and I'm, I'm hoping that he wins, the, the, the Democrats win the, the Senate and the House. So that there's, there's no way that anyone can wriggle out of this. Mm. And uh, they'll... they'll uh, but I, I think there is a chance that he will lose the election. They could hold the Republicans could hold the Senate, and then it'd be very, very hard to actually work through what needs to happen after that because Trump won't leave easily, and when he does, he'll take his forty percent of the American voting public with him. Mm. who believe that the guy is worth investing in. Mm. Uh, that's a shitload of people. Mm. And I, I say that, you know, my America is uh, in, um, in an uncivil war at the moment, a very uncivil war. If you look at the, the nastiness there, it's just shocking what's going on. Uh, the growth of right-wing groups. Uh, could, I could go on all day about it. Don't get me started. But um, uh, uh, the, um, I think it'll shift to a civil war in some places. And I, I, I think we've got to watch what certain National Guards do, whether they, you know, watch the, what the governors do. And uh, as I say, if the Senate is Republican... Uh, a lot of those are so corrupt, morally and values corrupt, that they're more than likely um, going to still find it hard to, to let go of the Trump era. Mm -hmm. So I think 21 for America, um, whether uh, he, if he wins the presidency, well, good night, America. But I think it's still hard for America. We can't rely on America, America for at least another three years to do anything responsible, mm. particularly if they lose the Senate. 
Well, Larry, uh, I think uh, we've got a lot that we can still talk about. We probably need a part two, and we'll, <laughs> make, we'll make the part two after the election, so uh, you know we can Fantastic. see if uh, your predictions are correct. Well, look, Larry, thanks very much. I really appreciate your time. It's been a fascinating conversation, uh, uh, and uh, as I said, we'll share Larry's uh, contact details in the show notes. But. Um, uh, have a fantastic afternoon and look forward to speaking again soon. Thanks, Rich. Really appreciate it, mate. All right. Good stuff. Catch you later. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Arate Podcast with Richard Treeks. For show notes and other resources, please visit aratepodcast.com. While you are there, you can subscribe for future episodes so you can continue your own journey towards realizing your full potential as a senior executive. And please be sure to share this and other episodes with your friends and colleagues. The Arate Podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.